To kick off our first Thursday guest episode, it's only fitting that we have on Brian Bartz, as he was the first guest on our regularly scheduled program. We break down The Wolf by Mumford & Sons off the album Wilder Mind, uh, which we all agreed was our favorite Mumford & Sons album. Had a really great conversation, and the first time Brian was on, we really nerded out on the music. Uh, this time, with Michael here, gave us an opportunity to nerd out extra hard on the lyrics. So, hope you enjoy this one. Just, it's really funny because I've heard Brandon talk about you so much, Brian. Uh-oh. And the the couple encounters I've had with you, I'm just going to get straight to it. <laughs> you seem like an incredibly awesome guy. And the two times I've had the opportunity to actually get to know you, the format of our hanging out didn't really permit that kind of conversation. No. Because the first time I met you was literally at uh, Hey Rosetta. Or no, no, Appleseed Cast, was it? Cast. Appleseed oh, that Cast. was the first time you met him, huh? That was the first time yep. I met him. Oh, wow. So there's music going on. Mm-hmm. And now, just before we started talking about this, I'm like getting to know him as a person for about seven minutes. And then it's like, <laughs> all right, we need to talk. So um, either you're really awesome or a lot of people lie about you. Okay. Well, either way, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I feel like I know you because I listen to the podcast a lot. So it works out well. Thank you. And and obviously, we have a great mutual friend. Um, so anybody who Brandon likes, I like. I just realized I said thank you, and he didn't necessarily compliment me. That was, that was really... That was, it's not something I'm proud of, but we're going to push through it. No, so, um, hey, Mr. Brian, welcome back. When you talked to Brandon, when you guys literally texted me and said, hey, man, uh, I don't think we're doing this thing. Don't come over. And then... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how that's how that went. No, no, I missed it. But uh, yeah, how are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here with you, boys. Um, and yeah, the first time we hung out, the the preface to meeting you was Brian's like, you got to meet this guy. He's awesome. We connect on a ton of levels. And um, yeah, we haven't shared a lot of interaction. But man, you're a great guy. I really have enjoyed hanging out with you um, at the concert. And for five minutes before we turn on the microphone, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been it's been an honor. And and I talked a little bit on the, the Mute Math podcast, but I hear music through my gut, and you hear it, I think, through your head. And mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited to sit down and not talk, but more listen to what you have to say, because I think some of the songs we'll be tearing apart are more, more of that cerebral, lyrically-based um, music, and, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say, man. So, thanks. Yeah, well, to bust you out a little bit, um, uh, so the song Heartbroken... Yeah. Okay. On the Outlet album, I told Brandon, uh, we were talking about that album one time, and I was like, dude, the first time I heard Heartbroken, I was in the car, and oh man, I was just, I, I, I was, I was crying with my wife. I mean, it's just a gorgeous song, and Brandon's like, yeah, and you know what? Brian wrote that song, and he claims <laughs> that he doesn't get very cerebral, but how can you write music like that? And so, I, I, I get what you're saying, especially as like a drummer, I can only imagine the kind of physical relationship 
that you have with sound and the sonic experience, but I'd imagine there's plenty plenty of cerebral activity going on when you listen yeah, to there has to be and i told i actually said to michael not telling you who you are but <laughs> yeah i said to michael one day i was like <laughs> we need to have brian on so i could just call bs on him you know not being cerebral or listening to lyrics at all because they're they're phenomenal and specifically for that song and another thing i've kind of said to michael about um my set of friends one thing i am super proud of in life is that Almost everybody that I know does things better than I do, and I've somehow managed to sneak my way in to knowing people that are better than me at almost everything that we share, that we, that we do together. And so, like, uh, uh, specifically, even with the podcast, it's funny, if you look at how many listens we've had, <laughs> the top five, aside from the introduction episode, the top five... Um, have all been songs Michael picked. It's awesome. There you go. It's great. And they're, they're all above the original introduction thing. But, uh, but and then it, as far as uh, writing music, it's kind of weird that I've written, I think, almost every song we've ever played together, Brian, I've written the, the basis of it and then we kind of work it out together. But the best song we have ever played together is the song you wrote. <laughs> it is like somehow I've just been able to be surrounded. Even, even with, uh, I mentioned this on an episode with Tyler Tomaszewski when I played live with Shaggy versus the Tank Tops. Um, you know, Kyle, Tyler, and Zach are all better musicians than I am. And I just kind of happen to fall into the laps of people that are, uh, it, it's just, it's, I'm very proud that I've been able to surround myself with people that are really, really great at certain things. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that way about both of you guys, really. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll say one more thing so we can, um, and maybe we'll clap, clap, we'll cap. We don't want to clap oh, it. Clap. We do not want to clap it. <laughs> Would you like we'll a put a cap clap? on this uh, uh, <laughs> flattering fest? But yeah, so this is kind of partially an intervention to you, Brian, to let you know we know you're smart. So you're not fooling anyone. Also, uh, I kind of got you pegged a little bit because um, you seem like a really humble guy because you asked me in the five-minute said conversation we had before this. You asked me about my school endeavors. I talked for a while about it. Then I asked you about when you went to school. And you so succinctly said in about 30 seconds, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's supposed to take me seven, eight years, you know, but... I was kind of nuts, you know, I did it in five, you know, it was kind of dumb. And, and then you like moved on and I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about that because that <laughs> sounds really impressive. But yeah, so I get it. Um, you're a humble guy. You seem kind of perfect. I don't know. You either have bodies in your basement or you're really a great guy. We'll find out. Yeah, well, at the end of the episode, well, I'll let you guys vote and see where I land. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, when we talked, Brian, we knew we wanted to do Wolf Am I because originally when we got together um, and, and Michael was going to be here, unfortunately couldn't make it, we were going to do Wolf Am I at that point. And <clears throat> Me Without You, um, which we're not breaking down that song right now, but uh, uh, Me Without You is very, very special to all of us. And I thought, Hey, when you're coming down again to jam, um, we, we should try to do not only Wolf Am I, let's try to do another song that maybe is important to you again, because I really felt like it was fun to, to talk about, uh, chaos. And so you brought up the wolf by Mumford and sons. And, uh, uh, I guess why did that, why did that come to mind? 
Um, I honestly don't know. It's just a song that I like, and that's partly why I'm here. So don't don't consider me as like your guest for the day. I feel like I'm a guest guest. I'm just gonna like sit here and try to figure out from you guys why I like this song. Um, <laughs> honestly, okay. there's like no, I have no connection to this band per se or this song per se. It just the first time I heard it, it grabbed me. Mm-hmm. I've never seen them live. Their first couple albums were like very Appalachian Mountain Man, like not my thing per se, but this album was great. Um, I think the the biggest connection I had, Brandon, when we played with um, with Jed and Keenan Abel live, you brought a, a track from this album to the table, and I really liked playing it. It was way more fun than I expected. So, you you put this uh, this album on my radar. Thank you. Well, what's funny about this album specifically, because Mumford and Sons, you know, they blew up. They've been nominated for Grammys. They've won. They won Album of the Year for one of their albums, maybe multiple albums. I don't know. They're super popular out in the UK. And so they're not, you know, everybody knows Mumford and Sons pretty much. But the first couple albums, like you mentioned, it didn't really hit me. There were a couple of songs. There were really good elements in there. I actually, I, I, I like the guy's voice. Some of the lyrical content, I could tell it was it was better than most of what was out for sure. Mm-hmm. Some of the lyrical content was was really great, and I didn't mind the music, but I also didn't fall in love with it. And so they were just kind of a band that was like, oh, I ki- I kind of like that, but would have never really, um, you know, took 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 a listen on my own, so to speak. And then, dude, this is this is what's so great about um, this particular album that this song's on. So when, Michael, when you and I worked at the Harley dealership, um, our lead tech there, Van Austin, um, it's funny because we had um, speakers set up in the tech, tech area. So he was a, a motorcycle technician. And we have speakers set up and you could turn the radio on. And um, every once in a while, you know, before Van started working there, before he kind of became the lead guy, everybody would kind of pick a day, they'd pick a station, and sometimes it was country, and sometimes it was rock, but it was always the radio. But then on Van's days to pick music, he would play his own music from his phone through his Bluetooth speaker, loud as balls, like just fill the place up. I had to come back sometimes and be like, you know, the customers have to talk to our service consultants about what they need. We might need to turn it down a little bit. And especially some of the choices of music, you know, he wasn't playing... Uh, they, they were explicit, not, you know, unlike the radio that all that stuff's filtered out. So, so it, what's funny though, is, uh, uh, for him, for Van specifically, um, I could tell that music had helped him move throughout the day without music and his choice of music. He had a worse day than when he could pick it. And eventually he was just the guy playing the music because nobody else there really cared. And since Van cared so much, they just let him play whatever. And uh, I found that interesting because he's not a musical guy. He is as meathead as you could get, spends his time in the gym, fixes motorcycles, you know, lowers his, lowers his trucks, does all that stuff. He's a great guy. I developed great friendship, a great friendship with him. But he's very, very different from me in that, in that, um, in that way. But, uh, I, but music clearly meant something to him in a whole different capacity than it meant to me. And so one day I'm walking through and this song is playing and it was amazing. And I had never heard it, didn't know who it was. So I went up to Van, I'm like, dude, who, who, what is this? He said, it's Mumford and Sons. And I, the only Mumford and Sons I had known, they weren't, you know, they, they weren't rocking out with full instrumentation and sounding this good. And it was the song Snake Eyes. And so 
when I heard that song, I had like this moment at a motorcycle lift with a meathead tech that it was just, you know, is on. And I'm like, I have got to go. I've got to, I, I went right into my office, found it on Amazon Music, that album, and just saved it for later. I didn't want to listen to more in that moment. Like this, it was very, very good. But then on the, on the drive home that day, I, I listened to the album. And then when I got home, I, I completed it. And from start to finish, the entire album... Um, is just something special, man. There's not a bad track on it. And Snake Eyes was the first one I heard, so it was kind of what made me fall in love with this. But every track on this is uh, is so good. So when you wanted to bring up The Wolf, it didn't matter to me ultimately which track um, because I could, I could kind of nerd out. Plus, it, it's a little special. I found, I kind of, I knew about the band, of course, but I found out about this in an album that I, I think is incredible from a, totally different source than I would have ever heard music from, which was just kind of a cool experience. So what, what particularly draws you to this song, Brian, like musically or really anything, like let's open it up with that. What particularly about the song? The, uh, the music breakdown, I think it would be considered like the chorus or the post-chorus Brandon. I don't, I don't even know, but when the band comes in full bore and there's no there's no singing it's just instrumentation and it's like that fast kick with the guitar over the top of it the the kick and the bass are syncopated and when that comes in man it just oh it's beautiful it it hits you in that in that place that makes you smile and i feel like no matter what kind of music you like if you like metal or if you like punk or like any type of rock music i feel like you're going to like that part <laughs> like it just it just immediately you have an grabs appreciation you. for it absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah it almost doesn't matter what kind of music you listen to i, I get I, I actually get a similar vibe from jimmy eat world yeah with how you just described that moment there are moments within jimmy eat world that it's like i think a lot of people it's kind of like foo fighters too there's a lot in foo fighters that a lot of different people that enjoy different genres can appreciate some of the stuff and and that was what is so different about this album from any of their other stuff is they actually were able to capture what other bands do so well but it wasn't really in their lane and it's kind of a mystery to me because it's very very good I, I couldn't agree with you more that you definitely have to have an appreciation for whatever genres you're into yeah and classic me like that's the only thing that i gleaned from the song was hey this part's great and never paid attention to the lyrics i didn't even really know the lyrics until we sat down and like mapped it out so there will be some sometimes in this episode where i just say michael go or michael help and you're just going to have to take over well what michael what was your what what was your introduction to mumford i mean is this do you like all of their stuff um, was this a, kind of a, a break from the norm? Were you a big fan prior to this album, or what's your history with them? Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad Brian brought this to the table because um, I, I've liked pretty much everything I've heard of them, and I actually used to have their music um, back when we listened to CDs. Um, I had like a burned album of Mumford and Sons that I would listen to, and uh, so that was like kind of part of my like, you know. Um, repertoire and and um yeah i haven't had any of their music on my phone or anything in since so <laughs> after i listened to the wolf i was just like dude one this song is excellent two like i miss listening to mumford and son so i just bought an album and i've been listening to them a lot more um and 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 you hit on something too like clearly i enjoy analyzing lyrics and to be in the vein that mumford and sons is in and to have the depth of um, verse is something special because 
I mean, even this song, it it, it seems relatively um, tame, right? Like poetically, because it's like, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, yada, yada. But I think there's just a lot going on with that that is really special. And that's something that even doing this podcast has intrigued me more. And, and that's something as a writer that intrigues me more is kind of taking on... Um, finding finding people do something that has been done often exceptionally you know what i mean because often artists lean on obscurity and lean on you know separate approaches um to kind of craft and create something that someone is like oh man you know that's that's great but to take something that has been done so many times over and over again and somehow do it in a way where people are like oh man that's 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 really hard and so that driving part that I, really draws you to this song, like, man, how many times have we heard songs that set it up like that? But the resolve in that driving part is just like, whew, they, they, they send it, you know? Yeah, it, I totally agree. It is crazy that there's only so many progressions that you can have. There's only so many notes available. And in, in some, you know, in some music, like, <clears throat> let's talk about jazz. Uh, I mean with jazz music, they go all over the place with it. I mean, drummers go all over the place. Like, that whole genre is known to be just like, if you're there, that style of music is for musicians and for elite musicians even, right. people that can really play. So it's not that you can't explore a lot of different avenues with music. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're talking about the kind of feeling that this song gives you and the progression that they utilize being a very basic progression throughout the song... It is quite amazing that it still it still moves it still moves you in this way. It's it's part of the fun I think of of talking about this, and it's it's part of what makes it very special. Um, because while these guys have elements of pop for sure and could be considered a pop band, they they're attractive to they're attractive to me as somebody who doesn't necessarily you know migrate towards pop music really love just good driving rock and roll and somehow they nail it man mm -hmm. and it's such a departure from their from their previous stuff that it's quite amazing that they could do this so well and even honestly the album after this i don't feel accomplishes it is as great as this album does even mm -hmm. um but so i i'm gonna have to ask brian something because i kind of want to I'll talk about one part of the lyrics and then hand it over to Brian because he brought something up right before we started talking about this, that after listening to this song over and over again and kind of dissecting it, right when I got to the end, I was like, something just didn't fit. And, and one of the words that didn't fit was, um, I believe it's your wonton ways. And I was like, you know, if this, if this narrator is talking from the point of view of like a human talking to another human, it seems a little pretentious, you know? It's almost like, is this narrator telling this person, like, you know, quit being so skanky and, and, and you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to introduce you to a mu more pure love, you know? And so that was the only thing that was kind of disjointed. But everything else just had this um, sense of desire to it that was incredibly charming, you know? And then I was like, wait a second. What if the narrator is from... A divine point of view and then i was like hmm so maybe we can get into that but before we do they poetically one thing that i i really like and i, I 
feel semi guilty hijacking this to get straight into the lyrics when we're talking about music, but um, that's what I'm going to do. The the chorus, been wandering for days, how you felt me slip your mind, leave behind your wanton ways, I want to learn to love in kind. So he goes, the, the narrator goes, A, B, A, B. And then there's a fifth line, because you were all I ever longed for. And naturally, it almost seems like that fifth line is hanging there. But I would argue that it not only brings resolve, but it brings release. I feel like the A-B rhyme scheme is almost kind of containing um, this sort of situation that is taking place. And the protagonist, the person that the narrator is speaking to, is, is almost being bound, right? And, and that, that, cause you were all I ever longed for just almost frees the, the protagonist. And, and when he's belting longed for like, man, that just gets me. And so right there is kind of, in my opinion, one of those techniques where, okay, you got an AB rhyme scheme and then you're, you got a fifth line hanging there to take it into, you know, the jam. How many times has that been done? But he does it super well. And often artists, in my opinion, would leave that four lines and, 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 and lean on the rhyme scheme to be the, um, the mortar holding that together. But the rhyme scheme here is actually um, setting up what, what releases it. So That's a really cool thought, man. Because I didn't care about the lyrics on this particular song at all. The music and how it drives... Um, I didn't think about any of that, but that's actually kind of a brilliant assessment because you're, you're right. It, it is very true that the rhyme scheme in typical four line ABAB to use your term, um, that is, it's, it's the fundamental pattern that's being used, but, uh, wow, that's really cool. That's something special about this song that I think when I would go back, I can, I can appreciate that now. So yeah, thanks for your genius. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, no problem. So to hand it over to Brian, when I thought, "Mm, is this narrator from the point of view of a divine entity, right? I have my own spiritual beliefs to think of, to think of my higher power, to think of God longing for me in the way that this guy is singing it, you know, is just a very charming notion to me, in my opinion. So Brian, what do you think is going on here, if, if at all, if, if you have any thoughts on what's going on lyrically, um, what do you think's going on? And I never considered what you just said. And I think maybe you're right, you know, that maybe this is a divine, the narrator is, is more a, a God figure talking to somebody else. I mean, you, I, just, I just assume when, when somebody's talking, it's their point of view and they're expressing their own opinion and their own set of, you know, life experiences. But yeah, I think you're totally right. And it makes the song like 10 times more beautiful. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. I would have never thought about that. I, I assumed it was a, a, a romantic type of relationship. The, the author or the singer was wanting to be with this person and it wasn't working out. They were almost kind of judging this person. Like in the very first um, stanza, the tightrope that you wander every time, it makes me feel like he's kind of criticizing this person for waxing and waning and being here or being explicit or or sleeping around or whatever you know there's definitely that judgmental connotation with a lot of these lyrics and and maybe it's the it's the the author who's the guy who's getting judged for this himself and and that's crazy that flip yeah 
Yeah. And so I, I had to, I had to do just like a brief, you know, it's so nice that in 2020, um, like it takes about seven Google searches to learn a ton about someone. <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. take much. Um, so Marcus Mumford is the son of someone who started, yeah, I've, vineyard, I've heard of Vineyard Church. Vineyard, yeah. Right. Actually, both his, his parents, both, both, both his, his mom parents. and dad, yeah. So, so, so clearly you have, you know, plenty of spirituality in the home, but as we've, you know, seen, that doesn't, that doesn't say anything about how, you know, the children will, will take on their own faith. I mean, it'll be very influential to them, but they'll have their own uh, decision. And so I found some articles where I think one in 2013, I think it might've been with Rolling Stone, Marcus Mumford, you know, mentioned that he doesn't necessarily prefer either either the term Christianity or for that to be brought into the conversation. And he said, why? But then I found another link that in 2017, he was at like a, like a summit, like a, like a Christian conference. And he was very open about his uh, uh, well, relationship. I, I read both of those articles as well. Yeah. Because uh, like you said, in just a couple of yeah. Google searches. And, <clears throat> but the, the, uh, uh, I, I just want to note on the 2013 one that he did with Rolling Stone, he did say he doesn't want to be linked with Christianity, something similar to that. But he did say that um, uh, he had mentioned something where somebody that's Muslim could say, yeah, hey, I know about Jesus and I think he would have been, an, he was an awesome man. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. They just have a recognition of uh, who Jesus was and what he did, or at least that, that idea of a man that would do that. And so then in 2017, when he, what he said to that um, congregation of people was, I love Jesus and I always will. will yeah. But I think actually what's cool is if you take a little bit of the clues from that original um, one, he actually recognized that he does have, basically, I think what's going on with him is that he has a great respect for Jesus and who he would be. And even if to him, maybe in his own heart, I, I, he also kind of put in there, it's, you know, he's still kind of developing his own spirituality. And what that means to him, I think, was in the article in 2013, something similar to that. But um, um, I think what he's ultimately saying is, like, look, the whole idea of of what Jesus, who he was and what he would have done, you can love that concept or even love the man if you believe that he was around, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Um, and I think that that's kind of cool. So that comes across in his lyrics because he does, he does outright say, I believe in God, but he doesn't want to be called a Christian but he kind of loves the ideals and that obviously had to happen from his past and his home life. And, and I mean, he's a 30, I think he's 33 years old right now. He's born in 1987. And so even when I think about, I'm 37 now, when I think about four or five years ago for me and everybody's going through their journey, I had a very Christian upbringing and going through and it's kind of fun. I think that adds a little bit of the flavor for me too in his music is, you know, maybe he's gone through somewhat of a similar journey and although he hasn't been completely straightforward about it in his lyrics, a la David Bazan or Derek Webb or Pete Stewart, um, you get elements of that in some of his music. And me, I, I don't have to talk. I could not talk about Christianity and what it's meant to me in my past ever again on this podcast. And I think people would have plenty of material to go back and understand a little bit about it. But there is a piece of that that I definitely I definitely connect with. And I think on the topic of Jesus, though, um, you know, it, it, I can see how somebody would be able to say, I, I definitely love the idea of what he would have done if if Jesus would have done that. And that's where I think he kind of stands on it. Sure, sure. So, Brian, what uh, you had mentioned 
in, uh, possible like scriptural references or, or um, so yeah. Yeah. Which so um, to backtrack a little bit, th- I had read the same thing that he's the son of like these two pretty prominent ministers, and you know, a lot of us go through spiritual changes and journeys through throughout our life, and really, no matter where you end up at the end of that, I think there's certainly value in in where we came from, and obviously that's where you and I met, Brandon. Um, there aren't many places in the world that you can be a musician at 14, you know, yeah. and get to play that's true. to to play and learn how to polish your craft and learn how to play in front of other people. So there's certainly a musical value to growing up in the church, just just from a music standpoint alone. And and obviously, I think Marcus Mumford has uh, has certainly reaped the benefits of of that. Um, and that's a cool thought. I didn't think of it in that way, but you're you're right. I mean, on a weekly basis, we'd have we would really have youth group on Wednesdays and then Sunday, you know, you'd have church and I'd play in both of those. And you're absolutely right. Growing up, you play twice a week in front of a bunch of people. It can help you get comfortable with that. It's almost like a sport, you know, like sure. you get good at basketball. If you go to basketball practice three times a week and like we grew up in church playing two or three times a week in a band, you know? Yeah. And, and we, I feel like hopefully that, that has um, helped us be more developed as musicians. Um, so we can thank the church environment for that. Um, as far as biblical references, um, I'm going to go to Darren King's Sunday school class for a minute. Uh, <laughs> to steal a term from Tyler Wolf too, I hit I hit this with the goog as well. Um, I thought the one of the lyrics you have been weighted and you have been found wanting. I was very curious as to where that came from and what it meant because it it seems kind of disjointed and it doesn't make sense to me with the rest of the song so i just typed that phrase into google and it turns out it's like a verbatim reference to um daniel chapter five um so the book of daniel i know there's some like debate on whether a daniel is real b if he was a singular person or c if he's like a, a singular personification of multiple heroes back in the day you know i don't know that's a different a different podcast but in Daniel 5, there's a King Belshazzar, and he's hosting this massive party for like thousands of people. Um, they're partying up, they're drinking, getting drunk, they're doing all this stuff, just having this, this huge old biblical times party. And in the middle of this party, um, there's a human hand that shows up and writes some words on this wall. And obviously everybody freaks out, party breaks up, party's over. Um, nobody in the land could figure out what was written on this wall. So the king um, invited his astrologers, his mystics, basically everybody he could figure out who was smarter than him could not figure out what this writing meant. Um, somebody finally said, we got to get Daniel in here. He was known throughout the kingdom to be able to interpret things. So the words on the wall were many, many, tekel, parson. And many means God has numbered your days as a ruler. And then he says many again, so you, you kind of know you're screwed at that point. Then he says <laughs> tekel, which the, the translation is you have been weighted and you have been found wanting. Um, and then the third was parson, your kingdom is officially divided. So obviously not good news for the king. Um, Daniel is awarded third in power for being able to interpret this. And then subsequently the king was killed. So the, the term writing on the wall that we still sometimes use today is from from that whole story. And I don't know how that fits into the rest of the song, but it's a complex story that certainly has some biblical references. And I don't know what it means or how it fits into the song. So, Michael, go. <laughs> <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> no, I, I love that because, um, man, it's so fun. Like, 
look, I had this, I had this opportunity. Um, so I love education. Um, I could talk about that, um, for a long period of time. And especially with my past, like thinking that I had taken that opportunity away from myself was very, really devastating. You know, like I, I mourned it. I remember times in active addiction, like legit, I would have dreams that I was back in school and I was like at a desk and I felt so like grateful that I had like another chance, you know? And then I remember like there'd be times where the dream would end by like, I knew it was ending, you know, I knew I was in the dream and I was just so sad. And then I'd wake up and my life was the way it was. And I was like, of course, you know, of course. So like, you know, fast forward, you know, a decade later and I'm, I'm back in college and it's just like, it's so exciting and, 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 and it keeps getting more exciting. And last semester, man, I had the opportunity. I, I work for like this or not work. I, I participate in the school's like uh, literary publication um, called the muse. And, and, and we had this opportunity to interview a poet and um, she was just sensational. And I got to analyze, you know, we, we spent time looking at her work a week before we had the interview. And the task was for each student to come up with two questions. And I read through two of her books and I talked to one of the poets who's a teacher at school and you know, just hearing him talk about how poetry is supposed to be difficult and we're supposed to have to like dig in and like wrestle with it, you know, and just the, uh, just the, the concept of an artist creating art that seems one way on the surface, but then as you labor at it more and more, and that's actually, you know, regardless of what the, um, theological angle you, you come at with the Bible from a literary perspective, the Bible is one of the most, you know, dense, um, if not the most dense, you know, forms of literature that's ever been composed because of how much um, saturation, cultural saturation is in each line. You know what I mean? Like there's, um, there's just a lot. And if you look at Jesus' parables, right, and you take them as stories, but then you look at life application and all these things, and then the cultural context, it's like, Damn, <laughs> there's a lot there. So anyways, I preface all this with saying that's kind of the journey I had with this song. And I could be overshooting it. And Marcus Mumford could be like, yeah, I just put some lyrics together. We had an awesome, we had, we had an awesome like <laughs> song and it really like hit hard. And so I just threw these together. But just like you said, the you have been weighed, you have been wanting. And then the leave behind your wanton ways. There was something that was just like, man, this is not a romance song. But I was like, but it's very romantic, you know, it's gorgeous. And that's when I thought, you know, oh man, if this was from the perspective of a godlike figure, to take your phrase, towards the end, when the song changes and they're just blowing it up musically, hold my gaze, love, you know, I want to let it go. We will stare down at the wonder of it all and I will hold you in it and I will hold you in it. I was like... But then what still threw me off was hold my gaze, love, you know, I want to let it go. Um, that kind of tripped me up a little bit, right? But we will stare down at the wonder of it all. That staring, um, if we go back to the first stanza, which I'll tangent to and then pass it off. The very first two lines, wide eyed with a heart made full of fright, your eyes follow like tracers in the night. 
right? Like this person is full of fright. They're terrified. That's the kind of vision we start. The 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 um this 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 song with right. So we're taking this frightened form of vision, and he um articulates it very well because he uses an effective simile. Your eyes follow like tracers in the night. Love it when musicians do that. Often musicians kind of blunder about with similes because they try and choose something that's like complex or like choose like a multi-syllabic word when it's like, dude, just describe something that people can envision. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't try and sound great. Create something that looks great. You know what I mean? That's the purpose of a simile. Um, and so, I don't know. I just thought, wow, this this form of, this protagonist is seeing a certain way, right? A certain Having a certain vision. But then there's a transformation, and then they're able to see things in a whole new light, like almost literally. So there's, I don't think that the author intends that, or the narrator intends that they can provide the protagonist with that kind of transformation. That would be a bit pompous. <laughs> I think there's something more going on. But anyways, I'll uh, hand it off. Well, I, I would say I... I I did lie before when I said that I didn't care at all about the lyrics. I, <clears throat> I felt um, really the music's just so good, and I do think that um, I don't. I don't. I feel like maybe because I hear other artists get, go really deep into discussing um, their thoughts on faith and 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 trudging through that. I f I feel like what he does is he does a good job of just staying kind of on the surface of it instead of going, you know, really deep into it and exposing putting his heart really on a sleeve and exposing it all. He doesn't do that like other artists do. And I think that's why I don't, I don't disrespect that or anything by any means at all, because it's very poetic and it's still, it fits the feeling of the song and, and there's still, there's still good feeling in there, but you don't get it fully exposed. And I think there's a beauty to that. There's a mystery that's left with that. There's not a whole lot of mystery in Derek Webb and David Bazan. You get, you get what they think, right? This guy still leaves the mystery in it. And I think that's why there's also a lot of discussions online for, you know, <clears throat> one, I, I really only know a lot about the Christian culture because I was part of it. And one thing I remember yearning for in that was hearing about other people that were Christians. And if they were really famous, that made it even kind of better. And so there is kind of this, this idea in, that, in, in the Christian culture to, to want artists to be on their side. And so there are quite a few articles out there about, hey, is Mumford & Sons a Christian band, so to speak? And they, they want to be able to, they want to be able to put a label on it, right? Because he's so vague, I think, throughout this. And some of the, quite a bit of the lyrics that I've written over time, uh, in a relationship with God or the idea of God, um, there's a give and take, there's a back and forth within yourself of you speaking and then you listening, or you feeling like maybe God would have said this, or this is what God's saying to me that I'm feeling right now. And you have those, and, and it's never this one-way conversation when you're, when you're dealing in your own mind about, uh, I guess, when you're praying or trying to have a conversation with God. It, it never feels one way when you're really committed to God. And so it's never this monologue, and it, not, from, not from God and not from you. And I think what's cool about this, when I interpret these lyrics, is that I really feel like the, the first um, 
the first verse is really God talking to to the narrator. Um, uh, hey, God's saying to the narrator, hey, you're wide-eyed with a heart full of fright. Your eyes fall like traces of the night and the tightrope that you wander every time. You've been weighed, you've been found wanting. And I think what he's doing is taking that biblical reference that you mentioned, Brian, and <clears throat> I, I like that because the voice of God saying this, it's something that was written on a wall that was kind of, it came from God. And I think he's more of just referencing this is coming from God by using a line that's biblical that came from God. And so it's really putting there. And then God continues to say, you've been wandering for days, how you felt me slip your mind, leave behind your wanton ways. And then it flips to me to the narrator. And the narrator says, I want to learn to love in kind. And I love the the words in kind because that that just means, you know, whatever you're receiving from somebody, you can reciprocate. So God loving the narrator, the narrator's then saying, I want to learn to love in kind. I want to learn to love you back because I see that you love me by what you're saying right now. And then the narrator then says to God, because you are all I ever long for. Mm -hmm. Then it goes back to... Um, God speaking to the narrator, hey, shelter, you better keep the wolf back from the door. He wanders ever closer every night and how he waits being for blood. Hey, but I promised you everything would be fine. Just like the reassuring, right? Then, <clears throat> then the last stanza, I think, is a little bit of a back and forth where God says, hold my gaze, love, meaning keep, keep looking at me. Don't, don't look at what's happening around you. Keep your eyes focused on me. And then the narrator says back, you know I want to let it go, meaning they're tempted. Like, it's hard for me to hold this gaze. You know I want to let that gaze go because it's not super easy sometimes. There's a lot going on around here. I got a lot of distractions. But then God says back, we will stare down at the wonder of it all, meaning if you can let that go, we'll look at it together, and I will hold you in it. And so I think it's really kind of, it, the way I interpret this at least, is really kind of a beautiful depiction of, you know, uh, 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 somebody with somebody in that kind of internally having that conversation with their concept of God. And, um, uh, because that's so indicative of somebody who has a relationship with God, he does a very good job of still keeping that on the surface and not getting too far down in there and kind of painting that back and forth. Well, um, can I do a couple rapid fire questions, Michael? I'll allow it. You're the lyrical expert here. So, you mentioned a couple times earlier the, the line, we will stare down at the wonder of it all. Is that where you first got the idea that maybe this is like a, a godlike figure talking to the author? Yeah. Almost it, like a figurative heaven looking down at it all, et cetera. Yeah. When they got okay. to that point, I was okay. like, all right, what's going on here? All right. Yeah. Th that makes sense. Uh, yeah. You guys just totally blew my mind. Like I never, ever put like that type of connotation with this song. So um, obviously the song is called The Wolf. And the, there's the line in the song, um, Sheltered, you better keep the wolf back from the door. What do you feel like the wolf is? I mean, I th it would be an easy grab to go at, you know, the, the um, imagery or concept or entity of Satan. But I think... I'll pass this off to you here in a second, Brandon, because I know that you got something. But I, I would imagine. <laughs> sorry if my body. I'm really no. sorry. He's like I, ra I, he's raising his hand over well, here. When, when you first asked it, I, I didn't catch if you had asked Michael or me, so I kept going back and forth because there was a bit of a pause. And I'm like, wait, am I supposed to talk right now? So I thought he said you, but that's all. Sorry, man. No, no, no. I'm, I'm very interested. I just didn't know if I was missing my my cue. 
No, no, it's all good. I, I would imagine that for, um, so you, you telling that story and, and, um, about Daniel and then the party, if I, if I could, I would imagine that there's some wanton ways that were going on at the party. <laughs> <laughs> Just a hunch. <laughs> and, and, and that is definitely a biblical theme that has continued until today, right? That's not a, that's not something that doesn't apply today is, uh, where's like the moral line with our behavior, you know, and what are the consequences for our morality, you know, and you have all sorts of discussions and all sorts of conversation that go along with that. But one way or another, the, the, the object, the individual being spoken to has clearly been, um, rattled by these kinds of wanton ways. And that is, is clearly preventing them from learning to love in kind, right? So I would imagine one could argue that the wolf could essentially be seen as our own um, moral shortcomings. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, that makes sense. Um, and then the last stanza of that same phrase, he says, I promised you everything would be fine. So it seems like the author is, is familiar with what the wolf is and was reassuring this person, like, don't worry. Mm-hmm. everything's going to be fine and and maybe it isn't at the end of the day w- what do you think what do you think that means like i promised you everything would be fine where how does that fit into all this stuff i don't know yeah yeah no that's a great question i i don't really necessarily have an answer to that i would just have you know one assumption i'll give is that um you know it's funny i've started reading uh, a a book about the Bible and I was, I'm going to start getting into the Bible a little more lately and not from like a purely um, analytical perspective. I, I don't believe that any sort of religious text is designed to just be read like it's, you know, something in a Petri dish, you know, but I also have my own, <laughs> you know, I don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Um, I, I don't believe that it's, you know, a hundred percent even accurate when it comes to, there's just a lot of stuff in there. Right. But I want to learn more because it's so foundational to Western culture. Sure. You know what I mean? To Western culture, the importance of the Bible cannot be understated. And especially in the literary canon, if you want to hang with understanding some of the very powerful themes that have been written about, especially in the 20th and 21st century, and you don't have good biblical understanding, you're going to be at a loss. And so then I was like, man, I want to pick this thing up again. It's been a while, right? It's been a while since I've read. But then I also was like, I remember enjoying reading books about the Bible, like to learn more about contemporary authors. Um, so I, I, I preface all that to say that I wouldn't be able to uh, give any sort of, of quote. I would be giving a generalization, but I do remember the concept of the uh, firmness and kind of salvation. You know what I mean? Like whatever your preconceived fears or notions are, like, you know, my love will outlast this. You know what I mean? My love will outlast this. And that's kind of the finality of it all. Um, like Jesus said, you know, it is finished. Um, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a statement of finality, you know? Sure. So I think if I had to just take a random guess, I promised you everything would be fine. There's this tendency that us humans have, in my opinion, I'll use this in recovery, where in recovery, recovering addicts are great forgetters. You would think that after you go through that insane lifestyle, you would wake up every morning and be like, I am never going back to that again. 
that was awful. I'm going to do everything in my power to stay, you know, rooted in, in, in my humility today. But that's not how it works um, for me. How it works for me is I get caught up in, in everything, right? I get caught up in working harder, making more money, um, being a better person, whatever, whatever obsession I have for the day. And I forget who I am and where I come from, you know? And, and I forget how important it is to just keep, um, keep focused on the basic principles. And when I was, you know, referred to myself as a Christian, and my spirituality really hasn't changed much since I stopped referring to myself as a Christian. I just have different theological beliefs and approaches. I just remember how easily I would be, like, dismayed by things. And I thought that kind of concept in scripture of, hey, the, 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 the reminders, the constant reminders of God just kind of touched me like a loving parent. You know what I mean? Just like a mother and father just constantly trying to re, um, um, redirect their children. And uh, so anyways, that's my 17-minute answer. Oh, thank you. That, <laughs> that, that helps. That was that, yeah, it's definitely really good stuff. So what, what's your favorite lyric then, Michael? It takes a while for my notes to come up sometimes because I, <laughs> I, I, I had one I had one chosen. Um, I, I, I don't have my notes coming up, but I, if I had to imagine, because you were all I ever longed for okay. because of the sonic effect of it. Like, this is such a... Um, since it's such a powerful burst when he sings that... Um, that I felt the most passion in my heart, and so that's my favorite line. Cool. You got one? Um, yeah, and there is one little change in like the A, B, A, B structure. The very last time they do the chorus, the the last B line, he says, I want to look you in the eye, and, yeah. and he doesn't do that in any of the other lines. So again, I don't know why he did that or what exactly that means, but when I first heard it, um, my thought was that whoever is narrating this is is saying to the other person like you need to be okay with yourself because I'm okay with you and I want to look you in the eye. So whatever you're going through, whatever side of the tightrope you've tipped on, um, learn to be okay with that because I'm ready to accept you where you are, and I want to look you in the eye. And that's like a beautiful redemptive moment in the song, and he and he saves it to the end. So they, it brings a good conclusion to the song and and possibly to the the lyrical meaning as well. I. I... It's cool you brought that up because I'll actually um, note that in my nerd level detail when I get there because um, that that's a uh, it is special that he changed that line. Um, I like your eyes follow like tracers in the night. I think I, I think why I like that is I would have never used the word tracers in any of my lyrics, and I think it's always fun because so many so many uh, rhyme schemes people use or or different ways that they try to express you know either love for somebody else or, um, discussions with God. I mean, um, you know, how many times has somebody rhymed love with above? You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's constant all the time. And so, uh, although this isn't a rhyming, he doesn't use it in rhyming. I get attracted, I think towards, 
uh, words. This is one of the things that with Me Without You, my mind just gets blown because so many of his songs, he says so many different words within it that I would have never used that it's just jam-packed. Not only are their songs jam-packed with lyrics because he, he the way that he talks, sings, it has a bunch. Um, I think that's part of one of the reasons I'm so attracted to Me Without You. But in this, uh, that word tracers was just kind of cool. And the, the meaning the meaning behind it, there's actually not a better word to use. And so it was very cool that it was a word I probably would have never picked, but it's the best word that could be in there. And then my favorite musical element, guys, has got to be the tambourine on this song. It has to be the tambourine. And here's why. <laughs> Michael, when you've listened, you've now listened to this song. Did you ever in your mind kind of just like, oh, I really like that there's a tambourine here? I actually haven't heard the song yet. I just <laughs> <laughs> I just read the lyrics and went to talk to you guys about it. Uh, did you ever really no, notice I, there was a tambourine on I it? Di- I did, okay. but I didn't realize that I really liked it until you just said that. Because well, when you said that, I was like, yeah, the tambourine is awesome in this. What is cool about it is not, here's the deal, dude. <laughs> like people say, hey, could I get some more cowbell? <laughs> The song could use some more cowbell, right? That's obviously a common thing people you know, might say in reference to the SNL skit. Tambourine is one of those instruments that you could maybe put in line with a cowbell, <laughs> a shaker, you know, it's got all those. But I got to tell you, one thing that makes um, this song gives me a similar roll your windows down and drive kind of feeling that, you know, a Jimmy Eat World or a Bleach song would do or, or, or something. And what makes that is the tambourine for me. If this song didn't have tambourine, I am telling you, if it didn't have tambourine, I would not be able to listen to this song without thinking, dear God, can somebody please put a tambourine on this song? (laughs) But they have it in all the right places. And when Brian and I record music together, we might have tambourine on every song we do. We we have tambourine and shaker across... Maybe all of our songs. It's it's quite it's in there. Sometimes it's in there very subtly, so you might not notice it. But it's just adding. It's adding to the layer, and it's helping. And what's really cool about tambourine as an instrument is that it doesn't muddy anything. the The frequencies that you hear it within your ear, it doesn't get muddy with really hardly anything at all. It only adds because it fits kind of right in with the cymbals and the drums. And so it just adds to that driving nature and they put it in all the right spots and in the spots that it shouldn't be in there. So whoever produced this album, if it wasn't any of these guys' idea, whoever produced this album, kudos to you, buddy. You knew when to have a tambourine in and I effing love it. I also love the overdrive on the bass. You can really, really hear it in the second verse very well. It, it is perfect for how driving it is and the bass really moves uh, the verses along, and um, you really get a chance to hear that overdrive shine, but it's not as good as the tambourine, baby. Yeah, I was going to say the tambourine, too. And that's really dumb that we have to admit this, but it's like <laughs> one of those things you don't want to admit that is in there. It's like the cowbell, like you said. It's yeah. just like, yeah, there's a tambourine. And we do have one in every track. Yeah. And almost any rock song, it's there. And it's like, the song would not be the same without it. Agreed. If you hit, if you mute the tambourine, it dies. Like the chorus dies. They do. Producers know that too. Good producers really know right. that, and that comes that probably comes more from the producer <clears throat> than it does the actual band member. So, nerd fact: I read that the producer actually played the drums on this track. Oh, so, really? Yeah, that oh, make cool. that would make sense. I feel like he he produced the song from a more rhythmic perspective, and he knew the tambourine had to be there. Dude, that's and yeah, when we do it, it even better. On, on all of our tracks, it's on almost every chorus, and then I also like to add it on like the twos and fours of some of the verses just to give mm-hmm. it a little extra movement and momentum, but 
Yeah, one of those stupid things that the song wouldn't be the same without. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite musical element, Michael? Yeah, I don't know if you guys noticed, like particularly with this song, but um, the tambourine <laughs> <laughs> is excellent. Uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> well, uh, I'll get in quick to the, a nerd level detail then, because um, uh, a very, very common technique. Uh, it's fun because this song actually does kind of embody a lot of very common um, uh, elements, and, and you kind of were mentioning that, Michael. And it's pretty amazing that you can still hear it and be excited about it, but it uses a lot of the same concepts. Uh, one very um, common strategy that songwriters do is um, after the bridge of a song they will go back to the chorus, but they'll go to the chorus and it's softer. It's a, it's a soft version of the chorus. We do it on some of our songs, Brian. I mean, it's a pretty common technique. It's very effective. It sounds good to the listener. It connects with them. And <clears throat> this song, if, uh, if, if somebody listening doesn't really pay attention to that or that's somewhat of a new concept for them to kind of realize that that's a strategy that's used often, why this song in particular is um, kind of a great poster boy song to, to understand that technique is it drops down, but he does that little adjustment in it that makes it a little more meaningful when he says, I want to look you in the eye. And so why that's, why that's brilliant is because it adds to, all right, they dropped that chorus down and they shifted one of the lines to help you pay attention. And it makes you really pay attention to him saying, I want to look you in the eye because he never said it before. It allows the voice to take the stage because the music drops back, and then they just crank it. And uh, um, so I, I just I maybe that's not a super nerd level, but um, I just felt like this was a great song that could can showcase how effective a soft chorus can be after the bridge. Yeah, and that's one of those little moves that separates like professional writers from a bunch of dudes in their basement. Like those little yeah. things make such a huge difference and. Kudos to these guys for figuring out how to pull that off. Yeah. I appreciate you guys letting me sit here and and badger you, especially Michael. I, I came here with this song with more questions than answers, and you guys really helped me sort this song out, and I love <laughs> it more now than I did when we started. That, and uh, yeah, thanks for saying all those things. And that has been a really neat consequence of doing this, is it's um, just you know, uh, romanced me even more and, and, and music. And uh, to go back to what you both just said, it's there, it's almost kind of sad. I know this sounds like a, uh, a very like melodramatic, uh, way to look at it, but it's almost kind of sad to think how many people listen to this song, you know, including myself and aren't even able to appreciate those little nuances, you know, but yet the artist takes time to punctuate the song as such, you know, and I think that's something that's so cool about artists like Mumford and Sons is you can just tell that, man, they could coast if they wanted to, like they have the fan base, they have, you know, everything, but that's one thing that, you know, Brandon and I often talk about one thing that I just am very enthralled, um, by with, uh, successful musicians, successful artists is their drive to continue to grow, um, to continue to improve, and to offer people um, just creative art. And I just think that, in, in my opinion, I can only imagine how hard that would be after having so much success, having, you know what I mean, to stay focused and to grind it out like that, you know? So to, 
to to be in a studio and to and to pick up these little things. That's it's really cool to think about. I th- I think what is kind of cool to piggyback off of what you're saying. What's kind of cool about Mumford and Sons is that you know there might be a Maroon Five song on the radio, and then right after it could come a Mumford and Sons song, and it wouldn't sound unnatural that it should happen. But I think what's a little bit different about Mumford to me is that where I don't I I don't want to bash, but like. Maroon 5 probably doesn't have a lot of musician fans. They have a ton of fans. They got plenty of them. And so when you say Mumford has enough fame and they could coast, it's true. They win Grammys. They've got all kinds of whatever. But I think there's a piece of it that they know that musicians can still be their fans. And that holds them a little more accountable, I think, than bands that that aren't musician bands. And uh, while Mumford & Sons, I'm not saying that they're this ideal musician's band. We're like Mute Math is an ideal musician's band, for sure, but they're not nearly as popular as Mumford & Sons. But that's what's kind of special about these guys is is you don't feel bad as a musician loving them. Yeah. <laughs> where, uh, where you could with some other pop artists, you know, and uh, kind of sets them apart a little bit. But do you do you have a uh, life application for us, Michael? I we're really picking on you. Today. No, I know, and I feel very guilty for how long I've already spoken on this um, episode. But I honestly, my my life application is more just um, internal dialogue. It, it really the power of this kind of narrative just made me really. Um, encouraged to be mindful of how I talk to myself and and to other people. But um, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm actually in a really good headspace, but like, I don't feel like I have this song figured out at all. So I'm just kind of like, it's kind of messed me up in a good way. And now I'm just excited to listen to it again. So that's where I'm at. Well, did you have one, Brian? No, I think I touched on it before that. I want to look you in the eye line. It hits me pretty hard. And and you you need to be okay with you because somebody wants to look you in the eye. Damn. Yeah, I like it. It's, it's funny because mine, when I had to think about the song, mine doesn't even really apply to the song. It applies more to the experience I had getting to know this album, which was, it's uh, it's pretty cool that you can find really great things in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. The fact that I found such a great album like this by talking with a meathead at a motorcycle lift. And Van, if you ever listen to this, <laughs> I don't mean meathead in a negative way. I love you, man. But that's what you are, and I think you would self-proclaim. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, I just I find that a little extra special for this to me is that I found it in a very unexpected place, and that it could be so meaningful. So kind of cool. All that. Happened. The other life application is um, more tampering. Yes, more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>